This is Guidepost, a new podcast from the publishers of The CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of The CRISPR Journal, covering the cutting edge of CRISPR research, technology, and gene editing. In a moment, our exclusive interview with Jacob Shurkow from the New York Law School. This episode of Guidepost is brought to you by Synthago, whose vision is to turn biology into an information science with the ultimate goal of dramatically extending the healthy human lifespan by providing genome engineering solutions. Learn more at synthago.com. So on this episode four of Guidepost, we turn to one of the most fascinating elements of the CRISPR story. Given the exciting applications of CRISPR in fields ranging from gene therapy to genetically modified foods, there's naturally been intense scrutiny of the ongoing dispute regarding the discovery and patenting of CRISPR gene editing technology. No one has covered this story more intensively or adeptly than Jacob Shurkow, an academic law professor at the New York Law School. I met Jacob recently in his office to hear his expert analysis of the whole patent dispute the differences between the current rulings in the US and Europe, and potential next steps in the ongoing saga. I'm with Jacob Shurkow at the New York Law School, soon to be full professor. Congratulations on your promotion. Thank you very much, Kevin. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, your interest in CRISPR. I was joking just before we started recording that uh, most of the all the guests so far on Guidepost, our podcast series, have been pioneers in the CRISPR field. You come at this from a slightly different angle. Yes, I think a wildly different angle. Um, so I'm an intellectual property scholar, and I'm interested in patents disputes, especially in the biotech area. So needless to say, the huge patent dispute uh, uh, regarding some foundational patents on CRISPR-Cas9 are of particular interest to me. So, you know, that's the... That's the place that I'm coming from this as a uh, a legal scholar of biotech patent cases rather than a biotech scientist. Right. And you did a wonderful job, I must say, in in sort of distilling that whole uh, arena, the patent landscape uh, around CRISPR and gene editing in the debut issue of the CRISPR Journal. So we'll come to that uh, during the course of our discussion. When did you first get interested in CRISPR or first, do you recall, first hearing about the term? Yeah, so I think it was back in about twenty end of twenty thirteen, beginning of twenty fourteen. Uh, I was a research fellow at Stanford Law School, and one of the professors I was working with, Hank Greeley, had a student in his seminar course, uh, Chris Wyant, who was interested in uh, biotech patents issues, and he approached. Hank and he approached me and said, uh, hey, there's this really interesting new technology. It's called CRISPR, and there may be some priority dispute over foundational patents in the area. Uh, and that was back in 2014. Chris helped me write uh, a, a Nature Biotech article that appeared, uh, I think, in the early part of 2015. And we were off to the races after that. So, I mean, that's the genesis of my interest mm. in this particular topic. And in a recent commentary, or maybe it's a year or two old now, but you called this whole <clears throat> uh, uh, this whole saga the biggest biotech patent dispute in decades. Is that still your, your view? I mean, certainly. I, I can't – it's hard for me, obviously, to think of another piece of technology – in the biotech area with such 
a public focus with such potential to um, perform the kind of holy grail of genetic engineering that I think many scientists mm. are looking for. Um, I mean, if you want to go back, if you want to go back a number of years, there, there's, there's almost like there's a couple of moments that really stand mm. out. And this mm. seems to be one of those. Mm. You have your you know, development of recombinant DNA in the late mm. 70s and the early 80s. Mm. You have the advent of PCR, 1985. Mm. Um, you, you may or may not, depending upon your view of the throughput of the technology, also believe that the discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells mm -hmm. or RNAi in the early 2000s mm -hmm. was important. And then here we are, 2013, 2014 with CRISPR. And I think that's the kind of level that, uh, level of excitement mm. that people have over this, uh, particular technology. So the fact that there is this crystalline patent dispute between two well-known scientists, I mm. think really adds, um, or I should say a group of well-known scientists mm. really adds a yep. lot of flavor to yep. uh, people's interest in yep. it. Well, I think many people uh, listening to this episode will be broadly familiar, no pun intended, with the um, uh, uh, some of the major figures and elements in this case, but you've really you know this stuff, you've studied it uh, and written extensively about it. So I thought it'd be helpful for us to just kind of quickly go over that history and you can, you'll be able to distill, I think, some of the issues that are important or perhaps not important uh, compared to the way it's been played out in, in the media. So uh, obviously we kind of start with this, the two seminal papers and what happened in terms of the patent uh, applications surrounding those, uh, the Downer-Charpentier paper in the summer of 2012 and then the Zhang uh, uh, paper from uh, the Broad Institute in early 2013. Um, do you want to take the story through and remind us what were the sort of the major uh, um, uh, signposts at, at, around that? Sure. So uh, things really start. Uh, so obviously both sides, and by both sides, I mean uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna on one side, they share a patent application. Yeah. Uh, and between Feng Zhang and his collaborators on another side, both sides filed for patent applications in uh, 2012. Mm -hmm. um, or, um, and uh, it was apparent at the time that the two institutions, University of California and the Broad Institute, were trying to resolve among themselves uh, what looked like a potential patent dispute between them that didn't, uh, those efforts didn't come to fruition. And so in 20, let's see if I'm getting the dates right here, 20, the end of 2013, mm -hmm. um, it must've been the end of 2014, um, University of California, uh, files a request with the Patent and Trademark Office that it declare uh, interference between the yet-issued University of California application and between some of the Broad Institute's patents, which were already granted by the U.S. PTO. That kicked off the interference proceeding, which is the uh, trial before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office as to exactly what the particular technology was that's invented that's being fought about. 
and who the first inventor of that technology was if it's necessary to answer that particular question. Is it significant that the, the Zhang uh, application was, uh, uh, that that patent application was awarded before the, the University of California application, even though it was filed afterwards? Uh, yes, right. So in um, uh, the way that the interference proceeding, or the way that interference proceedings, generally speaking, are structured, is that there's a junior party and a senior party. And this, you know, this is a complicated terminology. I don't know why that they do things this way. But one way to envision it is that my grandparents are senior citizens and I'm a junior citizen. So the senior party is the kind of earlier birthed application <laughs> and the junior party is the more recently birthed one. Um, and this changes the burdens. This changes whose burden it is to prove their particular case at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Mm. If you already have an issued patent application, or if you, at that point, if you already have an issued patent, mm. um, while you could still be the junior party or the senior party, I'm under the impression that the you know Patent and Trademark Office, all things being equal, is reluctant, more reluctant, I should say, to... Um, to invalidate or cancel a patent that's already been issued relative to an application that hasn't even necessarily gone through all the paces at mm -hmm. the USPTO. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some significance to the Brown Institute's patent being awarded first, although, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not a whole lot. And did that come about because of this expedited review that we've been reading so much about? Uh, so, yes and no, right? So I... I I think it is decidedly true that the Broad Institute's patent application would not have been issued in time for the interference proceeding had they not filed for expedited review. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that that has changed who the ultimate winner and loser of okay. the patent dispute either was at the interference proceeding or is eventually going to be after all the appeals mm -hmm. are exhausted. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people have focused, I think, in some cases unnecessarily so mm. on the fact that the Broad Institute made uh, used this particular expedited procedure in the what we would call the prosecution of their patents application. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think it's really kind of changed anything with respect to the interference okay. proceeding itself. It's a relatively minor detail and an otherwise sea of otherwise important details. <laughs> so this interference proceeding culminated, uh, I think I'm correct in saying, in, in a, a live hearing, a court hearing um, of the Patent Office in Virginia at the end of 2016, correct? Yeah, that's right. It was a rainy Tuesday, December 6th on 2016. Yeah. Um, it was probably the most well-attended interference proceeding in USPTO history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And was the onus on, how did that proceeding play out? In other words, was the onus on California to somehow invalidate the, the Broad's application or patent? Or what, what, who, was the, who, was the, who was litigating who at that time? So the University of California, being the earlier birthed application yeah. under this kind of ridiculous analogy that I trafficked out earlier, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the burden was on uh, the Broad Institute being the junior party to prove that they were entitled to their particular patent. Right. And the strategy that the Broad used successfully was to argue that Feng Zhang's invention was, at least from a patent law perspective, distinct 
from the invention that was described in Doudna and Charpentier's application. Mm -hmm. Feng Zhang's patent application, it really only described how to use the technology in eukaryotic cells. The methods of using the, uh, the technology in eukaryotic cells um, by, for example, you know, making use of a nuclear localization signal, by optimizing codons um, to be uh, more accurately uh, uh, tr uh, transcribed in a eukaryotic cell system. Um, this was different from the stuff, Broad's attorneys argued, uh, than what was described uh, in Dowden and Charpentier's application. The Patent Trial and Appeals Board they bought that argument. They said, yeah, right? So uh, the Broad Institute's patent application, it, it's something separate. It's a more specific application of the technology than Doudna and Charpentier described in their patent application. Therefore, the Broad is going to be entitled to their patents, kind of independent of what happens to Doudna and Charpentier's application once it gets assessed, finally, by an examiner at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. The, the ruling, the, the way this was described by the Patent Trial and Appeal Board was that there was, quote, no interference in fact. Mm -hmm. That even though it seemed like both parties were there at the same time mm -hmm. and they seemed to be working in relatively the same area, their patent applications, at the very least, did not interfere mm. with one another. Mm. So Jennifer Down and Emmanuel Charpentier and University of California, they can continue prosecuting their application mm -hmm. before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, but Zhang, meanwhile, uh, and the Broad Institute got to keep their patents independent of whatever that outcome was. Right. And we're still waiting... For that outcome, right? So that decision has been appealed, as all major patent disputes are, mm -hmm. right? All major patent disputes where one side mm -hmm. is not satisfied with the result, they get appealed. There's one court in the United States that hears all of these appeals. This is the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, all the, all the papers are in, all of the appellate papers are mm -hmm. in. We're just waiting for an oral argument date to be mm -hmm. set by the Federal Circuit, at least as of this taping. By the time listeners hear the podcast, we may very well yeah. have an oral argument okay. date. Um, it's likely to be in April or May of this year. Okay. And the way the Federal Circuit typically works, that means we're probably going to get a decision by April of next year. That is by April of 2019. <laughs> there was a, <clears throat> a time in this uh period of history that you've just been talking about where the, the rules of a patent, so how a patent is awarded, were changed. This is a very big deal in, in patent circles from first to invent to first to file. Did that have a bearing on this particular case? Yes and no. So the, the actual changing of the rules did not have a bearing on this case uh, because those rules didn't become effective until March 16th, 2013. Um, and both sides had filed their earliest patent applications back in 2012. Okay. So we were still, and for that matter, we are still yeah. with respect to these patents, we are still in first to invent land. Right. Had this been a first to file case, uh, there wouldn't be any interference for University of California right. to suggest. So uh, they would have just had to deal with whatever the uh, examiner said in right. the kind of the initial round of applications. There was, there was nothing that they could do to hamper the Broad's efforts right. in obtaining their patent 
prior to obtaining theirs right. if we were in the uh, first, to, first to file land. So there was some added poignancy to this rainy Tuesday morning or whatever that was in December in 2016. This might have been one of the last big major biotech court cases under those old rules. Yeah, that right. Not happen anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this seems to be one of the last yeah. interference proceedings. Certainly, yeah. the 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 last largest interference proceeding that yeah. we will probably ever see in the United States. Right. Uh, uh, all patent applications filed after March sixteenth, twenty thirteen, are subject to the new rules, and so you can actually count right. to see how many interferences are currently left outstanding. Mm. The last time I counted, there was something like just shy of 20. Mm. And once those 20 expire, they will be gone forever. Okay. The um, As we mentioned a few minutes ago, the, the Zhang paper was published some six months after Doubtner's paper, but the Broad has published um, internal uh, documents that showed that uh, he independently came up with this CRISPR genome editing um, strategy and an application uh, back in, I believe it was February 2011, so some two years before he published. Was that an important strand in the, the Broad's arguments in terms of showing um, independent uh, uh, discovery of CRISPR gene editing? So not for this particular case or not for the case in the United States. Okay. So all interference proceedings are split into two phases. Um, the first is the uh, interlocutory phase, and the second is the testimonial phase, I think. You're looking at me like I know. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I have to, you know, this is a particularly wonky area of okay. law. I just want to make sure I'm getting the terminology correct. I, I think those are what the two phases are called. Okay. So in this first phase, in the interlocutory phase, uh, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board is not asking... Uh, who was there first? You know, they're not necessarily asking, okay, who came out with the first paper? Who has the very first documentary evidence to demonstrate they were in possession of the invention? Rather, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board is trying to figure out what the what is. They're trying to figure out whether or not you really have the same invention and two parties fighting over that, right. or whether you really have two separate inventions. If you have two separate inventions, you don't have to get into this fight about who mm. came first. You have you know two mm. separate inventions. They get to have their own two mm. separate timelines. Mm. And if you have the same invention, that's where you have to start getting into, well, who was really there first? And you have to look at pieces of paper that are signed. Um, this is one of the reasons... Uh, if, if you're a fan of the history of this kind of stuff, why Bell Laboratories back in the day required all engineers to have every page of their notebooks dated and signed uh, before they left home for the evening was just in the event there was an interference proceeding right. ever, they'd right. have some documentary evidence of it then. So. Um, it's somewhat of a shame that this didn't come out in the interference proceeding because I would have loved to yeah. have heard more yeah. about uh, some of the history of this stuff from mm. the Broad Institute. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, it, it very well may be that some of this is lost to history, right. but I don't know. We'll okay. have to see. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Europe. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in Europe, which doesn't necessarily parallel the, the way that things are currently shaping up in the U.S. So Europe, entirely different rules. Europe has not been a first-to-invent regime um, that anyone can recall. I actually don't even know what the date is that they transferred. It may very well have been the case that uh, 
individual countries in Europe always had a first-to-file system. I don't know. Um, but the rules in Europe regarding priority for inventors are uh, very different from what they are in the United States. Um, and uh, so in Europe, at the very least, uh, Jennifer Down and Manuel Charpentier, their principal patent application was granted by the European Patent Office. They kind of won out of the gate in contrast to what happened here in the United States. After patents get granted in Europe, uh, parties can object, right? the formal word is oppose, a granted patent by the European Patent Office. And so there are some opposition proceedings surrounding Doudna and Charpentier's patent application there now. Those take a long time. Um, in some instances, those take as long as five years. So we're not going to get a final, final decision on Doudna and Charpentier's European patent application um, for a long time. Um, the Broad Institute, they also had, past tense, a number of patent applications covering some foundational aspects of the CRISPR technology that was issued by the European Patent Office. Mm -hmm. But there was a dispute in Europe, at the very least, over uh, whether Luciano Marafini at the Rockefeller University, whether he should have been listed on some follow-on patent applications that the Broad Institute had filed. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the bigger mysteries about the kind of CRISPR patent case. Mm. Marafini was a co-author on, I think, the 2013 Kong paper in science yep. that Jean, Jean had. Paper, you're yeah. right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but is not a listed inventor on many of the mm. United States patents with Jean. Mm. Um, in Europe, some of the earlier patent applications had Marafini listed, but later ones did not. And uh, this is not a huge deal in the United States. You know, if you believe you have a mistaken inventor listed, you could take people off. This doesn't affect the priority of the patent, but that's not true in Europe. In Europe, they're very rigid about exactly who could be listed uh, as an inventor and when and whether that... Um, affects the priority of a patent application. Mm. And so recently, just this past January, I think it was the week of January 14th, 15th, and mm. 16th, I think, the European Patent Office revoked many of the Broad's patents covering foundational aspects of CRISPR-Cas9 technology precisely because these patents didn't have priority over Doudna's application. Mm. And they didn't have priority over Doudna's application because uh, 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 Marafini was not listed as an inventor on that. Right. Um, so that is, needless to say, currently being appealed in Europe right now mm. to an outfit uh, colorfully called the Board of Appeal. Um, <laughs> and so uh, obviously are waiting for a decision on that. There's, you know, at least or, uh, yeah, there's at least two other rounds of appeals afterwards, mm. if the Broad Institute is not satisfied with the decision there. So this is yet another instance mm. where we're really not going to get a clear picture over who the owner is mm. uh, on any of these patents in Europe, at the very least, for mm. a long time coming. I think it's possible that some folks uh, have mistakenly assumed, just going back to the US situation for a minute, that it's sort of winner-take-all. You know, everyone's developing CRISPR gene editing technology, so either one team, the Broad, is going to win all the patents for this technology, or it'll be University of California, or maybe they come to some agreement beforehand. But it seems as if uh, that there may there is a, a scenario whereby both groups may get patents for different things, because as you mentioned earlier and explained very nicely, uh, the courts have viewed them as non-interfering. Uh, 
Yeah, so that's that's certainly true. So I, I think one of the things that we're seeing on the patent landscape right now um, is as more nucleases become discovered, um, there are more patents covering those particular nucleases or uses of those nucleases in new systems. Um, so, you know, just as a example of some of the nucleases that have patent protection that are just completely independent from any of the CRISPR-Cas9 yep. patents we're talking about right now. Yeah. There's obviously uh, CPF1, which uh, there are some patents covering that uh, where Zhang is an inventor there. Yep. There's CASX and CASY, discovered by uh, also Jennifer Doudna and her colleague Jillian Banfield at University of Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley. Yeah. Um, on top of that, uh, there are some uh, CJ-Cas9 orthologs that seem to be protected under um, separate patents right now, owned by an institute in Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another nuclease, Cas13A, uh, although that has been renamed, I think, from mm -hmm. what it used to be, uh, mainly also useful in some diagnostic systems mm -hmm. like Sherlock, mm -hmm. which the Broad Institute is seeking patent protection mm -hmm. for now. MAD7, I know, mm -hmm. was just recently patented, or at least there's a patent application mm -hmm. filed for it. Um, I assume that this is a non-exclusive list, that these are just going to yeah. increase as time goes yeah. on. So as there's more and more nucleases, as there's more and more iterations of the technology, there's more and more patents covering these variations on the technology out there. So the importance, or relative importance and fascination with this CRISPR-Cas9 saga may kind of start to recede into the background as some of these other uh, more recently discovered and characterized Cas nucleases uh, take on more and more commercial significance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that that's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to take a historical analogy, you could think of this as patents covering kind of first generation DNA uh, sequencing patents mm. or, or DNA amplification patents following the discovery of PCR in 1985. Mm relative to some of the really cool high-tech mm. stuff in the DNA sequencing world that we're seeing today, a lot mm. of the kind of multiplex sequencing that we're seeing now, um, and some of the, uh, you know, like Oxford nanopore sequences mm. that are also covered by patents now, too, mm. um, uh, you know, this tends to diminish our view of the importance of some of these earlier patent fights because mm. I think that we know that the technology is going to develop mm. to another point in the relatively near future, even though we don't necessarily know uh, what that future technology mm. is going to be. Mm. One could uh, question, perhaps, why uh, over the course of the past few years that this has been dragging on, the Broad and University of California and the other organizations involved haven't potentially found a way to you know, reach some sort of agreement. Do you have any thoughts on why this is still being um, fought out? Are the, are the, is, it, is it all about just the, the money and the financial returns that these universities stand to make or lose uh, as a result of this? I have no idea. This is anybody's guess. I think anyone who's interested in the answer to that question is better off asking the institutions themselves. Yeah. Um, typically, when these disputes are just about how much money could be received from royalties, uh, that's usually when the lawyers step in and hammer out a number that's acceptable to both parties, and everyone kind of goes on their own separate ways. Mm -hmm. When there's uh, a reluctance to settle cases like these, mm. typically speaking, it's about something more. Mm. I, again, don't know if that's the okay. case here, okay. um, but uh, 
you know, it's yeah. uh, left many people wondering, just yeah. as I am. Okay. We focused most of our discussion on the uh, the, the, the Zhang and Doudna uh, patent applications, but are there other applications, other patents that have been awarded that perhaps we should spend a bit of time talking about? Particularly, I'm curious in the ag bio uh, uh, territory. Um, what, what would you like to say about that? Well, so there is one patent application that I think is particularly important that does not get nearly enough discussion. Yeah. And that is actually Virginia Schneeks's patent. Yeah. So if you take a look at the patent landscape in the United States, Virginia Schneeks was really the first owner of a patent to claim using CRISPR-Cas9 as a gene editing technology. Yeah. Uh, his patent application predates Doudna's even by I think roughly 6 weeks. Okay. Um for some complicated reasons that I won't get into, this may uh, be particularly bad for uh, Doudna and uh, Emmanuel Charpentier's patent application if they have to go back to the PTO. Um, but it's something to think about. Um, we, we tend to have this view of uh, the patent dispute being kind of between these two principal parties. Um, but in reality, even in the United States, where things are more crystalline than they are in Europe, uh, it, it, there, there are more uh, patents, there are more parties out there that may have an effect on the dispute than we may give them credence for. Okay. As far as the ag bio space goes, um, prior to there being a decision with respect to the interference proceeding, um, essentially Monsanto on one side and DuPont Pioneer on the other uh, took bets as to who was going to win the interference proceeding with Monsanto siding with the Broad Institute and DuPont Pioneer siding with University of California. Um, after the interference proceeding got decided, uh, Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer entered into a pretty interesting arrangement where they have agreed to share their patents and cross-license them um, to any other agricultural companies that are interested mm. in using the particular technology there. Mm. This is something that's commercially viable for them to do, because unlike in the human therapeutic space, licenses tend to be what we call non-exclusive anyway. That is, you know, it's not just one company doing one iteration of the particular technology to the exclusion of others. It's rather it's kind of everyone jumping in and developing the technology mm. on their own ambit. Mm. Um, so here, um, by uh, DuPont Pioneer and Monsanto signing this cross-license, they've essentially, at least in the agricultural space, have resolved the mm. patent dispute for new entrants mm. in a way that it's not resolved in the right. human therapeutic space. Right. So uh, this is particularly interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll get to see whether or not uh, AgBio or the AgBio companies in the United States are able to kind of make use of this cross-licensing right. deal. Right, right. Uh, we've sent close to 30 minutes talking about CRISPR. What else is in the, in the legal biotech uh, uh, firmament? What else is catching your attention these days? Yeah, there is, needless to say, there's a lot going on. There yeah. always seems to be a lot going on. Um, one particular topic that I find to be interesting, and, and who knows, there may very well be a CRISPR connection one day, mm -hmm. um, is the advent and the development of what's called adaptive immune receptor repertoire sequencing. Mm -hmm. So um, used to be the case that if we wanted to sequence a particular immune receptor, and by immune receptor, I mean antibodies and T-cell receptors, 
you needed to pluck out a couple cells at a time, sequence them. Maybe you try to bind them to a particular antigen to try to, you know, get those particular uh, immune uh, receptors to be specific um, because those are the ones that you're interested in. Mm. Um, no one would just shotgun sequence the entire kind of immune receptor repertoire out there mm. uh, until 2009, mm. um, where the kind of advent and the development of high-throughput sequencing technologies mm. uh, enabled a number of research groups to essentially sequence all of, or almost all, I should say, or mm. an extremely large portion um, of, uh, uh, of, of sequences of uh, uh, B and T cells out there mm. to uh, get at what the uh, immune receptor sequences was mm. and, uh, and in some instances track their development as some of these cells mature. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is a research group out there called the Adaptive Immune Receptor Repertoire Community, or the AIR community, mm -hmm. um, that is a collection of just over now 100 scientists that are kind of involved in this relatively nascent field. Um, and I think that this raises a, you know, a whole number of what I think are particularly interesting intellectual property issues regarding what types of sequences, if any, could be patented, whether or not sequence data is properly kept a trade secret or whether it needs to be mm. shared, especially if it needs mm. to be uh, annotated by uh, uh, annotated by scientists mm. to determine whether or not it's of particular value to commercial developers um, for synthetic versions of these uh, immune receptors or not. Um, it's a really interesting use of high-throughput sequencing technology mm. that um, um, don't necessarily know if it's getting the press that maybe it's... Right deserves. Right. Um, to the extent that we end up knowing more about ways of engineering the immune system to produce certain immune receptors that we want um, to create more effective vaccines or to create immunity to particular foreign yeah. antigens that we're worried um, we kind of otherwise want the body to fight off of. Um, yeah. That could be a use of CRISPR in the future. We don't know. Yeah. Um, it's uh, possible. Yeah. Well, Jacob Schirkow uh, from New York Law School, it's been a pleasure uh, meeting you and talking about uh, all things CRISPR uh, in, in the patent landscape. Your review or perspective in the debut issue of the CRISPR journal, uh, the CRISPR patent landscape, past, present and future is a must read. And I urge everyone to look at that. Uh, and we'll be counting on you for future commentary as this saga continues. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Kevin.